This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is active citizenship in our communities. In the first half, Stan A. Taylor shares his address, Accountable Citizenship. Then in the second half, Lawrence C. Walters speaks on citizenship. I'm honored and humbled by this invitation uh, and pray for the Lord's blessings that I may convey well to you the message I have and that you might receive it in the spirit by which it was prepared. I have titled these remarks Accountable Citizenship, a phrase I have drawn from the 134th section of the Doctrine and Covenants and and the section about which I want to talk to you today. But I, I want to introduce this theme first with some preliminary thoughts, starting about agency. Beyond life itself, agency is God's greatest gift to His children. In the absence of agency, we could not progress towards our ultimate potential. A world without agency would be a prison from whose bars we could never escape. The principle of agency is so important that the most significant war in human or divine history was waged over it, and indeed continues today. Satan led those forces that would limit agency and progress, while he who would become our Savior led those forces supporting agency and the potential to become more like our Father. This helps us understand, I think, the LDS distaste for totalitarian or even authoritarian governments. Such political systems may achieve order, but it is an order without justice, without creativity and initiative, and without the opportunity to err, a community in which none could be proven and none could progress. This also helps us understand the LDS commitment to political freedom, to the rule of law, and to what is generally called liberal democratic governments, that is, governments that are created and maintained by popular sovereignty. Such governments are champions of individual and minority rights, personal freedom, and religious pluralism. These governments adopt laws to ensure the rights and protection of all, as we're told in the 101st section of the Doctrine and Covenants, so that every person may act in doctrine and principle pertaining to futurity, according to the moral agency which God has given unto him, that every man may be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment. Much of this commitment is explained in what I believe to be the most inspired and accurate statement ever written about government. The statement is titled, A Declaration of Belief Regarding Governments and Laws in General. We know it as section 134 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Former counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, J. Reuben Clark, has said that these statements are as wise and as far-reaching as the Articles of Faith themselves. Section 134, along with the Twelfth Article of Faith, addresses one of the oldest dilemmas of Christian intellectual history, the dilemma of dual sovereignty. Sovereignty means ultimate or supreme authority, and a sovereign is one who exercises supreme authority. Some Christians have grappled with the implications of this concept for centuries. How could one owe ultimate allegiance to both God and king? How could both God and king be sovereign? As President Howard Hunter once said, at first blush, dual sovereignty would seem inconsistent 
The standard scriptural basis for this dilemma is found in the 22nd chapter of Matthew. You all remember it. In an attempt to entrap the Savior, the Pharisees approached Jesus and asked, Is it lawful to give tribute, meaning tax, unto Caesar, or not? The question really was whether or not a Jew, one who considered his only sovereign God, could in good conscience pay tax to the Romans. It was a question of sovereignty. To whom did they owe their loyalty? And would the payment of tax violate allegiance to God? Now, if the Savior had said, yes, pay the tax, in a way he would have betrayed his cause. If he had said, no, don't pay the tax, he would have betrayed the government. The Savior, aware of their hypocrisy, as you all recall, asked first for a coin and then asked whose image appeared on the coin. When they replied, Caesar's, the Savior said simply, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar, and unto God's the things that are God's. Matthew reports that the Pharisees marveled and went their way. I suspect they might have left him still a little puzzled about this dilemma of dual sovereignty not understanding the implications of the Savior's use of this coin. The coin, as President Hunter has reminded us, represented temporal things and temporal power. And the image of the current Caesar on the coin was to be contrasted with the image of God stamped on the heart and soul of a man, which denotes that all of one's facilities and powers belong to God and should be employed in his service. In effect, the Savior told them that the things of this world are subject to worldly authority, but eternal things are subject only to God. But consistent with pharisaical behavior through all ages, those Pharisees wanted the lines drawn more clearly. They wanted to know precisely what was Caesar's and what was God's. Many Christian intellectuals have struggle to understand the full implications of dual sovereignty and to understand what must be rendered to Caesar and what must be rendered to God ever since. So this morning I want to read and comment on a few of the themes found in this section of the Doctrine and Covenants, this 134th section, and uh, draw some lessons, I hope, from this section of the Doctrine and Covenants. These teachings contained therein make a clear what must be rendered to Caesar and what must be rendered to God. First one begins, We believe that governments were instituted of God for the benefit of man. What a simple yet bold opening to this declaration. Now we have to keep in mind that this declaration was adopted by the church, and here I'm quoting from J. Reuben Clark, after the mobbings, the plunderings, the assassinations that were part of the church's early experience in Missouri. This statement was written by a people who, judged by human standards, had every reason to feel that their government had failed and that they might not hopefully and successfully look thereto for their protection. This opening declaration lays to rest the deceit of both ancient and modern anarchists. That government is evil. Listen to a few phrases I'll quote from a book that has been and continues to be popular among some Latter-day Saints. I'll quote just a few phrases from it. Government is evil, and we do not mean that they are merely dishonest, for all governments are dishonest, thoroughly dishonest. 
Government is always and inevitably an enemy of freedom, unquote. Now, does this sound like something that God would institute for the benefit of his children? I believe that a properly constituted and well-administered government is, in fact, the first friend of freedom. And notice that this verse does not talk about any particular government. It talks about governments. Joseph Smith once said that all regularly organized and well-established governments have certain laws by which the innocent are protected and the guilty punished. God has taught man, I'm continuing to quote from Joseph Smith, that law is necessary in order to govern. Since God is the source of all good and man is benefited by law, then certainly law, and by implication government, is good. Now this is not an endorsement of any or all governments, nor is it endorsement of any particular policy the American government. I've worked in for several years in both the House and the Senate in Washington, D.C., and I can criticize many aspects of government as well as anyone. But government is not a necessary evil. It is a necessary good. Now, why would the Lord institute government among his children when government has the potential of becoming dictatorial and of limiting human freedom? This question is answered in verse 6 of this section. Here I quote again, As without government and its laws, peace and harmony would be supplanted by anarchy and terror. There are two conditions with which the earthly kingdom of God cannot exist comfortably. First is under anarchy, where individuals are so concerned with physical survival that they cannot devote time and attention to more eternal concerns. Notice that the Book of Mormon appropriately links anarchy with terror. The condition of anarchy and the terror of living one's daily life under anarchy are well described in Ether in the Book of Mormon. I'll quote chapter 14. And now there began to be a great curse upon all the land because of the iniquity of the people, in which if a man should lay his tool or his sword upon the place, whither he would keep it, behold, Upon the morrow, he could not find it. So great was the curse upon the land. Wherefore, every man did cleave unto that which was his own, with his own hands, and would not borrow, neither would he lend. And every man kept the hilt of his sword in his right hand, in the defense of his property, and of his own life, and of his wives and children. Now, the second condition with which government cannot coexist, freedom, is dictatorship, where all or some religious practice is banned. As Elder Bruce Porter has reminded us, anarchy and dictatorship are related. As is often the case in history, he wrote, absolute dictatorship was made possible not by the steady growth of government into a leviathan of power, but rather by the destruction of government, which left a vacuum into which ruthless men could move. So both anarchy and dictatorship thwart God's plans, since both deny agency. Both anarchy and dictatorship create a society well described by Korihor in the Book of Mormon. It would be, according to Korihor, a society in which every man fared in life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospered according to his genius, and every man conquered according to his strength, 
And whatsoever a man did was no crime. Section 134 requires us, brothers and sisters, to respect government and to work for the establishment of well-ordered and well-administered governments in order to avoid the evil consequences of anarchy and terror. Government is the opposite of anarchy, and it was instituted by God to prevent this kind of society from coming into existence. It is an exalted and ennobling principle. And what does God expect from us in return for this great gift? Well, first, he expects us to be accountable for this gift. Listen to the continuation of verse 1. We believe that government was instituted of God for the benefit of man, and that he, God, holds men accountable for their acts in relation to them. God holds us accountable for our acts in relation to our governments. Now, I take this to mean two things. First, as verse 1 goes on to say, we are accountable both for making laws and for administering them for the good and safety of society. In commenting on this, President Clark said, Therefore, every man who takes a responsibility by virtue of assuming office in worldly government is responsible to the Lord for the way in which he carries it out. Whether a person takes office in the legislature or in the executive branch of government or in the judicial branch, he becomes, by virtue of that assumption, responsible to the Lord himself. What a different nation this and others would be if every public official understood this obligation. But I think accountable citizenship may also require more. It may require a willingness to participate in the political process. It is increasingly difficult to persuade good men and women to run for public office. Public officials seem to be so widely disliked and so much ill is spoken of them that that many are just unwilling to spend money and time only to earn disrespect. I remember many years ago when I ran for the state legislature, my mother of all people cautioned me against doing so by asking me if I really wanted to become a corrupt politician. Our late university president, Rex Lee, reminded us that we need to look more deeply at the phrase, render unto Caesar. He wrote, I'm quoting from President Lee, Citizen participation is the fuel that keeps the fires of democracy burning. It is also the single characteristic that best distinguishes republican forms of government from autocracy or dictatorships. The latter not only do not depend on participation by the people, they suppress it. And it also follows, President Lee said, that a creeping indifference among our citizens concerning the importance of their involvement in matters governmental can lead to a deterioration of democracy itself and of the freedoms that it secures. In this regard, we need to follow the admonition, I think, of section 98, where we are reminded to seek diligently and uphold honest and wise men and women for public office, because when the wicked rule, we're told, the people mourn, and that whatsoever is less than this cometh of evil. Hope we all remember the wonderful admonition to this end contained in the First Presidency Letter of January 15, 1998, read in many sacrament meetings uh, just a month or so ago. Among other things, this letter said, 
Thus, we strongly urge men and women to be willing to serve on school boards, city and county councils and commissions, state legislatures, and other high offices of either election or appointment, including involvement in the political party of their choice. Now, I think another aspect of accountable citizenship is spelled out more clearly in verse 6. Let me read from that. We believe that every man should be honored in his station, rulers and magistrates as such being placed for the protection of the innocent on the punishment of the guilty, and that to the laws all men show respect and deference. Verse 3 touches on this same thing. We believe that all governments necessarily require civil officers and magistrates to enforce the laws of the same, and that such as will administer the law in equity and justice should be sought for and upheld. Now, this second aspect of accountable citizenship suggests that we should honor and uphold office holders and even, dare I say the word, bureaucrats and the laws that they create, administer, and enforce. I know that in today's world this requires a near Christ-like charity of judgment. But could I quote at length from a great man who, unfortunately, we largely recall only for a building on this campus that bears his name, Stephen L. Richards. President Richards was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve and longtime counselor to President David O. McKay. Writing during the heat of World War II, President Richards said that he was concerned, and here I quote, he was concerned over the tendency to indulge in long-range criticism of public officials, especially as regards their private life and character. I include within the group not only political officers, but all others who, by reason of their elevation to positions of leadership, assume a responsibility for the direction of movements and causes. I recognize, of course, President Richards said, that the policies of a man in public place and the wisdom of his actions and statements are legitimate subjects for public debate, and that proper criticism of such matters is not only allowable, but is encouraged in the interest of good government. But is it necessary, President Richards continues, is it necessary in such an analysis of issues to bring imputations against a man's character, his intentions, and his honor? I think not, he said. And I believe that inestimable and unnecessary damage is done to personal reputations, sensitive feelings, and legitimate family pride by the misconceived and cruel strategy that the way to win an ideological victory is to assassinate the character of an opponent. One last paragraph from President Richards. I think that those who occupy positions of public trust and responsibility in state, church, or businesses are entitled to a measure of sympathy in the discharge of their obligations. It certainly is not easy, he said, to please everybody, and the enforcement of the best policies invariably affects someone adversely. But because a person is affected adversely is no justification for an attack on the personal character of the enforcing or policy-making officer. President Richards said, So until we stop calling men crooks, or I might add any other pejorative name, just because they disagree with us, we have much to repent of. We should yield obedience to this divine injunction of the Savior to refrain from intemperate judgment, to impute good rather than evil to the intentions of men, 
and to know the facts before deciding. We are much too prone to judge men by the mistakes they make, forgetting that we ourselves are constantly making mistakes. We seldom know or consider their intentions, and they themselves suffer most for their mistakes in both disappointment and consequences. Most people need our sympathy rather than our censure in their failures. Now, I apologize for such a long quotation, but this call for charity and judgment is beautiful, and it's more necessary today than it was in 1943 when he wrote it. This exhortation is especially significant to me. I've seen several individuals and families ruined by irresponsible and false accusations of wrongdoings. Now, I've talked about honoring and sustaining those who create the law, but what about showing respect and deference to the law itself? According to verse 5, back to the 134th section, we believe that all men are bound to sustain and uphold the respective governments in which they reside. Twelfth article of faith says, we believe in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. Again, the Doctrine and Covenants contains supporting material on this topic. Let no man break the laws of the land, for he that keepeth the laws of God hath no need to break the laws of the land. It makes no difference how we feel about a law. We should obey, honor, and sustain all laws, whether it be the law that requires us to pay taxes, to serve in the military, to sit on juries, or whatever. President Joseph F. Smith said, when we violate the laws of the land, we violate the laws of God. If we disagree with the laws of the land, we should work to change them. According to Joseph Smith, it is our duty to concentrate all our influence to make popular that which is sound and good, and unpopular that which is unsound. Tis right politically, according to the prophet, for a man who has influence to use it. But I believe this influence must be done appropriately. Our modern prophet Gordon B. Hinckley said, The building of public sentiment begins with a few earnest voices. I am not one to advocate shouting defiantly or shaking fists or issuing threats in the face of legislators. But I am one who believes that we should earnestly and sincerely and positively express our conviction to those given the heavy responsibility of making and enforcing our laws. Quite often, disregard for law and government stems from self-elevation, from believing that one's own desires are greater than the community. Historically, this perversion came about, I believe, as the noble goals of the Enlightenment, personal agency and individual rights, have been taken to an extreme. Elder Bruce Porter described this condition well. The whims and lusts of the individual become paramount, and man becomes his own God, a law unto himself. This is a perverted vision of freedom as the elimination of all laws, all restraints, and all government. Those who adopt this belief, as the Doctrine and Covenant says, become a law unto themselves. Being part of a community or a society requires respect for others and a willingness to restrain one's own desires in order to support broader community goals. Unwillingness to make this sacrifice results in a corrosion of shared values. Members of a community in which individualism and personal goals are pursued at the expense of community goals are driven to look out for their own self-interest, knowing that no one else will look out for those interests for them. The French philosopher Rousseau wrote critically of the anarchy created by the unrestrained pursuit of self-interest. 
In such a society or community, the public good is gradually driven out by individual goals, and eventually the very nature of the community itself is changed. Elder Maxwell said, Our whole system depends on what has been called obedience to the unenforceable, in which citizens willingly constrain themselves for the good of the whole because of shared respect. Once selfishness, which is an apostate form of individualism, reigns supreme, there cannot be a real sense of community. When shared respect dissolves, so does shared power. I like the work of Francis Fukuyama and of Robert Putnam on this topic. Putnam has documented the decline of what he calls social capital, or civic engagement and civic trust. In his provocative article called Bowling Alone, Putnam traces the quarter-century decline of a wide variety of civic organizations, including, obviously, bowling, and laments the community decline associated with these trends. The impact of unbridled self-interest on a community is imperceptible, but it's inexorable. Many times its effect can be seen only when it's too late. Social scientists often speak of what they call the problem of the commons, referring to uh, early New England, uh, where town commons were created on which community members could graze specified numbers of their cattle. However, as the community increased, cattle ownership increased, and individual owners would assume that certainly their own one additional cow would not damage the commons. Well, the individual assumption was correct, but the collective set of assumptions destroyed the commons. For several years, I have, I hope kindly and gently, stopped students as they've attempted to save a second or two by cutting across the grass or shrubbery. I remember once pointing back to an area that was once grass but now looked like hard scrabble and saying to a student, Look what you've done. At first he looked aghast, but then he said sort of defensively, I, I didn't do that. Well, like the New England cow owner, as an individual he was right, but collectively he had destroyed the beauty of that section of the university commons. President Jeffrey Holland once reminded us in this building, as I recall, that no individual snowflake ever assumes responsibility for an avalanche. Yet an avalanche is but a collection of snowflakes. In his commencement address in April of 96, President Hinckley quoted with favor a writer who said, People might think of a civilized community as one in which there is a refined culture. Not necessarily. First and foremost, it is one in which the mass of people subdue their selfish instincts in favor of the common well-being. Ignoring the common in whatever context leads to its destruction. An early American anonymous yet concise and penetrating poem, I think, describes the results of this kind of behavior. It goes as follows. The law detains both man and woman who steal the goose from off the common, but lets the greater felon loose who steals the common from the goose. This principle applies to us in whatever stage of life we find ourselves. Students need to think more about supporting the goals and values of this institution. Faculty need to use their time and efforts to do more than further their own personal and professional research agenda. And all of us need to be more sensitive to the needs of the larger communities around us. I hope that I'm not trivializing sacred things by talking about cutting across the grass and individual snowflakes. I don't want to do what Macaulay accused the English Puritans of doing, of 
making everything sacred, thus making the sacred trivial. But I am reminded of a story told to me by a friend of mine who's an area authority in the Northeast. He reported a conversation with a district judge in New York City who, on being asked why that illustrious but off-maligned city was actually starting to look a little better, responded that it was because they were enforcing the anti-spitting laws. My friend was surprised by the response and said, what does that have to do with the general decline of crime and other positive indicators of improvement. The judge said that they had discovered that if they enforced the little things that were actually enforceable, anti-spitting, anti-jaywalking, and other seemingly insignificant ordinances, then general respect for the city and its moral authority seemed to improve. And what were pockets a few years ago of actual anarchy in this urban life of New York City have now become much more orderly. And and here's the important point, thus giving city dwellers more freedom. I believe that accountable citizenship requires concern for community life as well as concern for individual goals. It requires us to give obedience to the unenforceable. It may even go beyond that. It may require voluntary community activities. It may require as Dean Erland Peterson pointed out in his devotional address a few months ago, significant individual and collective efforts to create or protect community values and standards, thus following the Lord's admonition to be anxiously engaged in a good cause and to do many good things of our own free will and to bring about much righteousness. On another issue, Section 134 calls for mutual respect and deference between state and religion. It goes on to say, We believe that religion is instituted of God and that men are amenable to Him and to Him only for the exercise of it, unless their religious opinions prompt them to infringe upon the rights and liberties of others. But we do not believe that human law has a right to interfere in prescribing rules of worship to bind the consciences of men, nor dictate forms for public or private devotion, that the civil magistrate should restrain crime but never control conscience, should punish guilt but never suppress the freedom of the soul. I believe we must be ever so careful, particularly in communities where LDS people predominate, to avoid using civil authority to enforce singularly unique LDS practices, or to dictate, as the Doctrine and Covenant says, forms for public or private devotion, merely because we have the political power to do so. At the same time, we must work as hard as we can in all levels of politics, as individuals and as groups, but not as church, to establish and enforce general moral and ethical standards. In summary, I have tried to suggest that accountable citizenship requires, one, appreciation and respect for the concept of government, two, a well-established and orderly government to prevent anarchy and terror and dictatorship, three, a willingness to participate in political affairs and to be accountable for one's political actions, Four, a willingness to withhold judgment and honor and respect those involved in civic affairs, whether elected, appointed, or volunteer. Five, a willingness to obey, honor, and sustain the law. Six, considerable self-sacrifice and respect for the needs of others and for the common good. 
Seven, a good dose of community spirit animated by healthy volunteerism. And eight, a respect for the distinction between church and state. I'm deeply grateful for the inspired teachings of this and other sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. I'm grateful for the principle of continuing revelation. I bear my testimony as to the truthfulness and relevance of these inspired scriptures in our lives today. And I pray that we will prepare ourselves for living in an eventual Zion community by bringing the principle of a Zion community into our lives today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is active citizenship in our communities. We've just heard from Stan A. Taylor. After the break, we'll return with Lawrence C. Walters for Citizenship. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is active citizenship in our communities. Next is Lawrence C. Walters, a professor in the BYU-Romney Institute of Public Management at the time of this address, titled Citizenship. We live in exciting times. Over 180 years ago, the Lord said, I will hasten my work in its time. On every hand, we hear from church leaders and see evidence that now is that time. And the young adults of the Church are central to virtually every aspect of this hastening of the work. However, this stone is not rolling forth without resistance. These are exciting times, but they are also described as perilous times. Just as the hastening is taking place on multiple fronts, so the perils we face come from multiple directions. Today, I would like to focus on what we can do in response to one trend that is making building the kingdom more difficult. In 1996, Professor Jean Elstein from the University of Chicago spoke from this stand about the state of democracy in America. She argued that we now live in a political age of resentment and withdrawal from civic life. She described at some length the weakening of democratic civil society. As a student of public decision processes, I can tell you that conditions have not improved in the years since Professor Elstein spoke here. The ability of democratic societies to bring together diverse views, critically examine arguments, and take action continues to erode. This is a problem for us because we need governments and civil society to work reasonably well if we are to effectively build the kingdom and spread the gospel. My purpose today is to explore with you what we can do to hasten the building of the kingdom by improving the quality of governance in our society. In particular, I want to consider more fully a theme that Professor Elstein referred to briefly in her talk. She noted that the great democratic theorists argue that democracy relies on the formation of civically engaged citizens. Oscar Arias, former president of Costa Rica and recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, once observed, Democracy cannot survive as a matter of institutions alone. It relies ultimately on the conscience and care of each citizen. So individuals and individual choices do matter. 
the effect of one upright individual is incalculable. World leaders may see their effect in headlines, but the ultimate course of the globe will be determined by the efforts of innumerable individuals acting on their consciences." Close quote. So the question I ask you to consider today is, what must I do to be an engaged, conscientious, and caring citizen in a democracy? Some of you are now saying to yourself, oh great, now I have to add saving democracy to the list of things I'm supposed to do. My objective today, however, is not to give you one more thing to do, but to give you a citizen's approach to everything you do. In answering the question for yourself, my hope is that you will reflect more deeply on your role in our society. To stimulate your thinking, I would like to share the personal vision that gets me out of bed every morning. In doing so, I will compare being a citizen in our society to being a citizen in the kingdom of God. There are at least two ways to think about citizenship. The first sees citizens as having certain rights which should be protected by law. Those who hold this view see citizenship as a legal status and are concerned mostly with defending individual freedoms from interference by others. There is no question that rights are an important aspect of citizenship. All too often, however, in today's world, this approach to citizenship descends into a type of consumerism. Citizens see themselves as no more than customers of government. Now, efforts by government to improve their operations by focusing on citizens as customers are certainly valuable. My concern is with the way we act when we think of ourselves as customers of government. Consumer citizenship is something we assert only occasionally. We exercise our right to vote every year or two, maybe. When we go to the poll, the store, to choose what we want from a list. If we don't like what's on the list, we may not even go to the store. If there's a problem in the community, we expect the government to deal with it. Most of the time, though, we just want to be left alone. We either actively avoid or at least ignore what's going on with governments. After all, we say there's not much we can do about it anyway. We would certainly never think about what we do at work or school or in the neighborhood in terms of citizenship. Some view their citizenship in the church this way as well. They may attend their meetings, but if they miss occasionally, no big deal. They may have a calling, but if it doesn't get done very consistently, it's because other things came up. It may even be that they ward hop because they want to limit other people's expectations of them. They may say to themselves, I'll show up just often enough to keep the bishop off my back and stay off the rescue list. I'll think about church part of the day on Sunday. The rest of the week is mine. The second vision of citizenship is more demanding and is captured well in the definition offered by Peter Block. A citizen is one who is willing to be accountable for and committed to the well-being of the whole. That whole can be a city block, a community, a nation, the earth. A citizen is one who produces the future, someone who does not wait, beg, or dream for the future. The antithesis of being a citizen is the choice to be a consumer or a client." Close quote. We often see references to a quote from Theodore Roosevelt about the man who is actually in the arena 
who does actually strive to do the deeds, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who, if he fails, at least fails having dared greatly. What is less often remembered is that Roosevelt was describing what it means to be a citizen. This view of citizens as doers of deeds, as active builders, seems more consistent with what our Heavenly Father expects of us as fellow citizens in his kingdom. He blessed us with agency, the ability and the responsibility to act in ways that make a difference in what happens. He expects us to use our agency to be anxiously engaged in building his kingdom. There are lessons to be learned about active citizenship and the training we have been receiving about hastening the work through ward councils. If I understand the message correctly, each member of the ward council is to prayerfully consider the needs of members of their organization. Then as the council meets, these needs are expressed and discussed by all members of the council. As a body, the council prayerfully deliberates on the needs of ward members, investigators, and their families. All members of the council take an active role in these deliberations. They bring their own perspectives, insights, and concerns to the discussion. All are equally and fully committed to the success of their joint efforts. A course of action is decided upon and assignments made. In the weeks that follow, those that receiving assignments are asked to report on their efforts. The council can then evaluate the actions taken and follow up as needed. I believe we can see in this example five essential attributes of active citizens in the Church and in society more broadly. Active citizens accept responsibility, do their homework, engage with others, take action, and learn from their experiences. Let me say a bit more about each of these attributes. First, active citizens accept responsibility. In the Church, these citizens take seriously the covenants they have made to bless the lives of God's children and to build the kingdom of God. They are willing to be accountable for and committed to the well-being of the whole. Elder Alexander Morrison made this observation about our stewardship as citizens in the kingdom of God. In addition to all else for which they are responsible, faithful stewards also have a deep sense of personal commitment to the mission of the Church. They see that mission in personal terms as one that applies directly to them and for which they bear a personal responsibility. They know that someday the Master will demand of them an accounting of what they did in helping to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man." Close quote. Section 134 of the Doctrine and Covenants connects this view of citizenship to our role in society. This declaration of the Church's belief regarding government states, Governments were instituted of God for the benefit of man, and that he holds men accountable for their acts in relation to them, both in making laws and administering them for the good and safety of society. Close quote. We believe that not only are we accountable for our individual actions, we are individually accountable for the actions taken by our governments. This accountability extends both to making laws and administering them. Active engagement in the functioning of government and in addressing community concerns is an inherent responsibility of our citizenship and demands our best efforts. Second, active citizens do their homework. Just a few verses after the Lord says he will hasten his work in its time, he proceeds to outline what we need to do to prepare for that hastening. It's a challenging list. 
We are to continue in prayer and fasting from then on. Teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom and all things that pertain to the kingdom of God, things both in heaven and in the earth and under the earth, things which have been, which are, which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home and abroad, the wars and the perplexities of nations, the judgments which are on the land, knowledge of countries and of kingdoms. And then we're given the reason for pursuing such a broad education that ye may be prepared in all things when I shall send you again to magnify the calling whereunto I have called you and the mission with which I have commissioned you. So if we are to fill our role in hastening the Lord's work, we need to devote ourselves to the pursuit of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom in pretty much all fields. If there's anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we aren't just interested in it, we seek earnestly after it. Being an active citizen in our society requires the same kind of commitment to learning that is expected of active citizens in the kingdom of God. Eleanor Roosevelt once observed that that learning to be a good citizen is learning to live to the maximum of one's abilities and opportunities, and every subject should be taught every child with this view. Close quote. Just as we see education as central to our preparation for citizenship in the kingdom, she saw producing citizens as the true purpose of education. And I agree. This emphasis on preparation and education reminds me of an article I read as a young graduate student. I was enthusiastic about becoming a public policy analyst and anxious to understand what would be expected of me. I read an article by a well-known professor in the field that outlined what he thought should be included in the curriculum of public policy programs. It was the most discouraging article I'd ever read. He said that to be a competent policy analyst, I needed to master not only economics and political science, but all types of history, science and technology, philosophy, psychology, institutional design and change, and then be prepared to analyze any given public problem using methods from several of these fields simultaneously and at different scales. For someone just starting out in the field, it was overwhelming. I've now been doing policy analysis for over 30 years. And I find that the professor was right. I have needed to understand these and other fields in order to address the problems I've worked on. But I didn't have to master everything all at once. I always had to be ready to learn new things. The nature of the problem I was working on determined the skills required in that situation. The lesson I learned about preparation is that active citizens, both in the kingdom and in society, must prioritize and focus their attention on the most significant issues. They then do their research, critically evaluate information, analyze carefully. They cultivate the ability to examine problems from the multiple perspectives that may be relevant. They seek to learn and understand all they can on any given issue. Third, active citizens engage with others. Paul, writing to the Ephesian converts, noted, Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. We're linked together through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the covenants we have made to produce the finished temple. The councils of the church are more effective when all members of the council have embraced their responsibility, done their homework, and are fully involved in council deliberations.
It's when we are all fitly framed together, united in our pursuit of the same eternal objectives, and each contributing our utmost that we make the most progress as a church and people. It's the same in the broader society. Paul's statement seems strikingly similar to a line that Thomas Jefferson penned. A nation, as a society, forms a moral person, and every member of it is personally responsible for his society. Close quote. This is a weighty thought, that we are each personally responsible for our society, but that is the Declaration of Section 134. We are each accountable for the quality of governance in our communities and nation. But we're not asked to bear this responsibility alone. Our lives are interconnected with others. Our capacities are enhanced, our possibilities expanded through cooperation and collaboration. Because of our shared responsibility, and because we're so much more effective together than we are individually, as active citizens, we must actively engage with others. We must cultivate the ability to participate in collective reasoning, just as we do in church councils. Such reasoning involves joining with others to identify issues and concerns, giving and receiving information, taking counsel together. In this process, citizens actually listen to others with the desire to understand their views. They ask questions they don't know the answer to. They respect others. They respect the decision process. Inevitably, deliberative processes such as I have described identify conflicting points of view. When that happens, active citizens don't give up, but look for common ground and seek to build on a foundation of common understanding. We build relationships, coalitions, and networks as we patiently strive to reach joint decisions. There is no question that serious deliberation with people we don't agree with can be slow and frustrating especially if we want the Lord's help, because then we have to get rid of all those unkind thoughts so the Spirit can be unrestrained. My experience suggests that we make much more progress when we put aside the idea that people who don't agree with us are either ignorant of the facts, stupid, or evil, and focus instead on what we have in common. Whether in the kingdom or society, Active citizens must strive to synthesize and reconcile conflicting views, values, and priorities. It's not easy to do even in the Church. It requires that we place the well-being of all on equal footing and that we always balance the common good against individual claims. One of the best examples of this type of deliberative process outside the Church was the convention that produced the U.S. Constitution. The delegates came from different regions of the country with strong and conflicting personal and regional interests. In creating a written constitution for a new form of government, they were attempting something that had never been done before. What they shared in common was a commitment to some very basic principles of freedom and governance. It took months of collaboration and at times contentious discussion, but the result has blessed the lives of millions. Fourth, active citizens make decisions and take action. Active citizens realize that obtaining knowledge, understanding, and wisdom is not enough. That discussion is essential but insufficient. Deliberation must result in action. Agency implies both the ability and the responsibility to act for the accomplishment of our purposes. Active citizens produce the future. They do not simply wait for it or dream about it. 
One of the best examples of this active citizenship attribute that I have ever encountered is my wife, Carol. At one point in our early married life, we moved to a very small town in Utah. We were concerned about the limited range of cultural opportunities in the community. Carol's response was to organize and direct a community theater. She also led the effort to relocate and expand the library. Shortly after we moved to Philadelphia for graduate school, the teachers went on strike for several months. We had five children at the time. Carol's response was to organize the parents, find a venue, and hold classes for all the kids in our neighborhood. When we moved to Provo, Carol continued her involvement in public education and was instrumental in developing a character education program that was implemented across the city. She's currently engaged in efforts to protect and improve the environmental conditions in Utah. She's the mother of seven children, and each is a remarkable individual. Carol understands at a very fundamental level the need to take action if the future is to be better for our community than the present. Fifth, active citizens learn from experience. The central purpose of life is to enable all of God's children to learn and develop through the exercise of their agency. As active citizens, we should reflect on our own experience and that of others as we continue to accept responsibility do our homework, actively engage with others, make decisions, and take actions. In the kingdom, we learn through this process to become more Christ-like. In society, we learn from our experience to exemplify Christ-like attitudes that will strengthen our communities. These attitudes include the humility to recognize that we may not be right, the empathy to strive to understand the minds of other men and women, the charity to value their interests alongside our own without bias, and the strength to aspire to a world in which the least are heard and considered side by side with the greatest. I've briefly described today five attributes of active citizens. I'm convinced that developing these attributes will make each of us more effective in our citizenship roles. When Abraham Lincoln dedicated the cemetery at Gettysburg, he spoke of the great task remaining before us, the task of preserving a free and democratic government. The work of carrying out that task is not finished, and it never will be. It will always require active citizens to maintain a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. For me, and I hope for you, active citizenship in the kingdom of God and active citizenship in society are not separate. When I am in the service of humanity, I am in the service of my God, whether that is in my church calling or advising a developing country on how to raise the tax money needed to improve public services. I hope to go wherever opportunity presents itself to try to improve the functioning of governments because governments have such a huge impact on the freedom, security, and happiness of all people. That connection between government and the well-being of God's children is why the Lord needs active citizens and why preparing students for careers in professional public service is essential to the mission of BYU. What I have shared today represents my vision and my testimony of what we need to become, what I strive to become. I'm not suggesting that you must single-handedly save the world or even just democracy. But your path through life is not intended to be a leave-no-trace hiking experience. 
If you will live your life as an active citizen, you will have an impact on the ultimate course of the globe. The Lord will use you to hasten His work in ways unimaginable to you today. These are exciting times. The Lord has such confidence in us. May we, as active citizens, be willing to accept responsibility, do our homework, actively engage with others, take action, and always learn from our experiences. I will close with the words penned by the Prophet Joseph from Liberty Jail with a slight addition. Therefore, dearly beloved brethren and sisters, my fellow citizens, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power, and then may we stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God and for His arm to be revealed. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Active Citizenship in Our Communities with thoughts from Stan A. Taylor and Lawrence C. Walters. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.